0: So, today we come to the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 24. I want to backtrack just a little bit to pick up context for us. If you'll stand for the reading of God, God's word, I'd appreciate it. I'm going to pick up at verse 33. This is right after the Emmaus Road incident. And this is uh, the disciples here. Picking up verse 33, ESV um, reads this way And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven, and those who were with them gathered, saying, The Lord has risen indeed, and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road, and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Let me pray. Father, I... uh, acknowledge uh, that uh, apart from your spirit's work, uh, if he doesn't do anything, um, that often our time is fruitless. Just human effort is not enough. And so Father, I ask that you'd help me to speak clearly. But Lord, I pray that you would engage our hearts um, so that we might hear from you, uh, that we might be challenged. And Lord, for those of us who need change, that you would bring about change. For those who need encouragement, give encouragement. Uh, Father, I pray that you would help people to hear just what they need as it pertains to this truth of your word. We pray these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you so much. So an author by the name of Stuart Briscoe wrote a book called Getting Into God, Practical Guidelines for the Christian Life. And in that book, uh, he tells a story from his personal life about an incident that happened with his son. And so let me recount that story to you that he wrote. And this is what he said. He said, years ago I was praying with one of my children at bedtime and I asked him if he had any problems we should pray about. He couldn't think of any, even though I could think of a number. Rather unwisely, I pressed the point and asked, don't you have any problems at school? No, he replied quite firmly. Don't the kids give you a hard time because you're a Christian? And again, the answer was no. Thinking back about my own traumatic school days, I said, but kids always give you a hard time if you let them know you're a Christian. His reply was frank beyond belief. All the more reason you don't let them know. And quite happily, he turned over, and went to sleep. Although we might not agree with Mr. Young Briscoe's conclusion, we can definitely understand the sentiment behind it. Fear can prove to be a powerful deterrent for sharing the good news about Jesus Christ with those who hold a different view about things. Whether that fear comes from uh, a fear because I, I, I feel like I lack knowledge about the topic, or whether it comes because of potential negative consequences that I might experience, such as maybe I'll be viewed differently. Uh, Maybe I might even be ridiculed, or perhaps, if it's in a work environment, I might even lose my job. One blog post put out in 2017 gave several reasons, at least, that he found from people of what they said of some of the reasons that caused them not to share the good news. Some of the top reasons that he gave that he said on this website and this blog was this, he said, People would say it in response, hey, I'm afraid that they'll ask me questions I can't answer. Others said, well, I struggle with my, my own faith. How can I tell others? Others said, I never learned how. And then some others said, I just don't know how to start that type of conversation. Perhaps you can identify with one or all of these reasons why you perhaps might not want to share your faith or the news about Jesus with others. Uh, Maybe you can understand where some of these people are coming from. Uh, Perhaps this is maybe some of the things of of the reasons behind what what was going on. Uh, In in another part of the article he talked about as he looked out at some of the trends on Google, because Google has been tracking trends on types of searches because they do that. And as he looked at it, uh, he looked at kind of the the span of a 13-year tracking of of trend uh, that dealt with uh, people's interest in searching for evangelism. And what he found that there was a steady decline from 2004 to 2017 and the pattern seemed to be going in that direction. That the interest in 2004 to 2017 was on a, a one directional trajectory, down. Interest was falling. Now, that may be interesting. That could mean a variety of things. Perhaps churches are doing a better job and so those, there's no need to, to, uh, to look for that on the internet because churches are providing that or it could mean that there is really less interest in evangelism or searching for that type of thing. When we take that in cooperation with other research evidence, it seems to point in the direction that this is becoming uh, of less interest to people in our world. Uh, There was a study done by Lifeway Research, Ed Stetzer reports on it in 2014 from the study that was called The State of Evangelism and this is what he said about some of the results of that study. He said, in our study we found that 85% of all believers between the ages of 18 to 29 agree that they have a responsibility to share the gospel with unbelievers, and that 69% of those same people feel comfortable sharing their faith. However, only 25% of them look for ways to share the gospel, and only 27% of them intentionally build relationships with those outside of the faith in order to do so. And so what he gets at is really this. There seems to be this kind of general consensus in the Christian circle that we we all kind of know that we ought to tell others the good news about Jesus. But in practice, when it comes to doing that, we either do it very rarely or we don't do it at all. And that's kind of what the data is suggesting. Now upon hearing this, we might be tempted to think, well, you know, That's just broader Christianity. It's kind of out there. That's what's going on in the broader world of American Christianity. But that's not Living Water Community Church. But what I would say to you, I would suggest that the data says something different. Let me share with you what the data says about Living Water at this point. So in the life of our church, we've taken two two snapshots of where we are spiritually. And so we've taken what was uh, called the Spiritual Life Survey. Uh, One was taken in 2012 and one was taken in 2016. 2012, uh, this is what we found in relationship to our church as it relates to this topic uh, from what people have told us. In 2012, 24% of our, the people in our congregation said, hey, I have more than six spiritual conversations with unbelievers in the span of one year. So if you average that out, that's about one conversation every two months. In 2016, we took another snapshot, and that number had risen, thankfully, to 33% of our congregation said, over the last year, I've had at least six conversations over the last year uh, with unbelievers that were spiritual conversations. Uh, That doesn't mean that people didn't have any conversations throughout the year. It just meant that in their category of what was considered at least a a regular uh, form of sharing with others, uh, that majority of people did not do that. Or at least we do it very rarely. So there's a sense that we know we ought to do it, We just don't necessarily do it often or don't do it at all. So our text today presents us with four things to consider of what might be influencing us in this area of why we're not getting involved in this way of what is causing us some reluctance. And what I also want to ask you today is as I raise these different areas, ask you to consider is there an area where you're struggling at and if you need to change in that area. And that's kind of what, what today's message is all about. So today we're at the end of the two-year, almost two-year journey. We've had a, pretty much a sermon for almost every book of the Bible. This is, as you notice, part 67. And so we've had a long journey through Luke. And so today we're going to conclude that journey. And Luke is going to conclude his gospel in a similar way to Matthew, just his own version of it. He's going to con- conclude with a commission to the disciples. And so this is the other, commis- other great commission that's given in the New Testament. We find the one in Matthew that we often refer to, but there's one in Luke as well, and that's here. And so we're going to take a chance to look at that today and see what the text tells us. And so I want to lay this out in four segments, and these are the four segments. Let me first introduce the first one, and I would say it like this, that sharing the good news requires that we have faith in the resurrected Jesus. That's the first idea. Sharing the good news requires that we have faith in the resurrected Jesus. Let me show you where I draw that from in the text. Look back at the text with me. Let me pick up in verse 36 through verse 42. And as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them, and he said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them." So Luke, unlike John, uh, gives us an undisclosed location and time in which this event happened. So we don't necessarily know when this happened. We know it's sometime after the Emmaus Road event. But Luke doesn't tell us when this is. We just know that the disciples are gathered and Jesus appears among them. The disciples here are not talking about the 11. He's already named them. But it's this larger group of disciples who followed Jesus down from Galilee, comprised of both men and women. So this is the, the larger group. Uh, at least at Acts seems to refer to about 120. So it may have been somewhere around that number that's dealing with that we're dealing with here. But it's, it's this larger group that Jesus appears in the midst of. Now they're having a discussion, right? Because the people who have had the experience with Jesus on the Emmaus road have come back to Jerusalem, although they were on Emmaus because of what happened encountering Jesus, and they're talking about that whole event when Jesus appears for appears among them. They're talking about Jesus appearing, and then he kind of just shows up, and that's what's happening in the text. Now, notice what the text says, or, or the way at least we've translated it into English. Here it says they are startled and frightened. And I would say that these are appropriate responses when you think that you're seeing a ghost who just appeared. Uh, So the the text says spirit, the word that he uses there. uh, It's getting at this is a disembodied entity, at least what they think of what they're encountering. So they're not sure uh, what in our way we would describe it would be a ghost uh, or is this an angel or are they having a vision? They're not sure what's really going on. They're not sure who's this here in front of them. They don't really know. They just know they have something, and this is perhaps an apparition that's happening in front of them. And, and like me, you know, if you've ever watched some of these scary movies out there, and you, I don't know if you like horror movies or anything like that, but watching ghost stories is not necessarily my favorite thing to do. So you're in a room, and if a ghostly uh, thing appears or a ghost appears or a presence appears, most likely, if, if it was me, I would be getting out of Dodge. I'm going to leave the room. I don't know about you. Perhaps you're one of those people who like those types of things and you love that kind of stuff. And you just hang around. I, I don't know. But, but the idea is they're startled and frightened. They think they're seeing a, a, a ghostly figure. They're afraid. You, you can understand why they, they feel that way. And so they're not sure. Is this Jesus or is this someone else? And so the Lord begins to address the concerns and he tackles them one at a time. He first starts off with the identity problem. The identity problem. Who is this that's standing before them? Notice what the text says. He tells them to look at his hands and feet. Now Luke doesn't tell us why he's saying that, but most likely we can assume because recently he had just been crucified probably some days before on Friday, uh, and he still has the wounds in his hands and feet. And that's why he's showing them to identify himself. He's producing for them continuity, that the same person who died is the same person who's standing before him, before them now. And that's why he goes on to say, in essence, hey, it really is me. See, my hands and my my feet. Uh, So in the ancient literature of the day, Uh, spirits could appear, and when they did appear, at least when they talked about from the broader context, they would often have the wounds they had from life to let you know that that was the same person who had died. And so Jesus shows them his hands and feet, and he says to them, hey, look, it's really me, guys. It's the same Jesus, the one who died. That's the one that's standing in front of you right now. But that's not resolved for us the problem of whether he's a disembodied spirit. We don't know whether or not he's just a ghost who's standing here in front of them. Uh, People are distressed, they're wondering, Maybe this is the spirit of Jesus that has come back. Some of the ancient literature, at least where this is presented, is kind of that kind of story. It fits into some of that category. And so Jesus says, okay, let me offer you the next piece of evidence. So you think that I'm a spirit. Let's, let's prove that, that that's not right. That's not a correct interpretation of the event. So he says, let me dispel the false belief that I'm simply just a disembodied spirit. Notice what he does in the text. What he says to them is to touch him, to let them know that he really is back. He's in an embodied form. And so they began to handle him. They began to touch him to see, no, he's really not a ghost. Yeah, there's something physically here. I'm handling Jesus. There, there's somebody in the room with us. This guy's really here. Uh, and and so, so that's what he's kind of dealing with there. So he, he lets them know that he is a real embodied person who's come back from the dead. And so he, he, he's dealing with that. And so they, they started to, 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 to look at that But notice what the text says. Even though they've seen him appear, they recognize that it is Jesus, and they realize he's embodied, the text says they still are struggling with unbelief. But the unbelief in this case is different than the other types of unbelief. It's not that they're refusing to believe, but notice what the text says. Luke says their disbelief comes from a state of joy. So this is the kind of idea of something that's too good to be true. It would be like, for instance, let's say tomorrow... Uh, you head off to get ready to go to work, and you receive a call in the middle of the day, and a reputable law firm calls you and says to you, hello, is this so-and-so? And And you said, yes, this is so-and-so. And And they say, hey, let me identify myself. I'm calling from such-and-such law firm. Uh, We would like for you in the next week to stop by. Uh, The law firm, we have some business to deal with. We we, want to let you know that a relative of yours, who you didn't know, passed away, and you have inherited hundreds of millions of dollars. Now, you might be excited at first, but more than likely there would be some disbelief, right? You would be like, this is probably a scam. I'm not really sure I can believe this. You know, I don't really know, you know. So that's, that's kind of what's going on with the disciples. They want to believe, but it seems too good to be true. Jesus back embodied right here. Uh, they're trying to figure out, is this really happening? And so that's the kind of unbelief they're dealing with here uh, in the text. And now what we find out from some of the, the other ancient literature is that what Jesus is going to do is to solidify his claim because of this unbelief. He offers them another piece of evidence. If you look in the text, notice what he does next. So they've handled him. They're still in unbelief. So Jesus says, okay, look, just to prove it, why don't you give me some food, right? Spirits don't eat food, so why don't you give me some food? And then he takes it and he eats it in their presence, right? And it is to prove that he's an embodied entity at this point. He's not just a figment of their imaginations. He's not a vision. This is not an angel who's showing up as Jesus. Jesus is really here. Now, when we look at some of the broader literature of the day, we see what Luke is doing here in light of that context of dealing with those stories of people coming back after the dead. There were other stories in the culture about people coming back and visiting. There was these ideas about that there were corpses sometimes who were given life again. And for a few days, they would come back and they would eat and they would do stuff and they would be embodied like that. But the reason we know that that, that Jesus is, that Luke is pushing against this idea that he's just an embodied corpse who's come back is because of the way Jesus has entered the room. Remember how Jesus got in? He didn't walk up, knock on the door, and come in. It just says he appeared. So only spirits appear and disappear. Remember when he was on the Emmaus Road, he was eating and he just kind of disappeared. This is body spirits do that. But then corpses, they have some tangibility to them. But here Jesus is embodied. So what what Luke is doing in light of the broader context of these understanding of these stories is Luke is pushing on all the categories that they know from the literature of their day about stories and the different types of stories that had to do with people appearing after death. And what Luke is saying is that what has happened with Jesus doesn't fit any of those categories. Something that has happened with Jesus is different and it's greater than anything you've heard about. They only have one category to put Jesus in in light of all the events when you take them in uh, all together and you look at them as a whole. What is the one category that Jesus fits in? The only one that they know about, the one that no one is looking for, is resurrection from the dead. Now, in the, in the Jewish community, that was a hell belief. But this belief was one that they believed would happen at the end of time, not in history now. It's when God was bringing the end of the world that he would resurrect people from the dead. But what they have to come to the conclusion of, based on the evidence, is that God has done something, although that they didn't expect it. He has done what he had promised at the end of history right now, currently in history with Jesus. The only category that he fits in is that Jesus has been raised from the dead. What is the Lord doing in this text for his disciples? We notice what they're battling with. Notice in the text what it's saying. What is he dealing with? Disbelief. Disbelief. He's dealing with their faith. Because what Jesus wants to deal with first is that in order for them to be his witnesses, they need to have faith in him as the resurrected Messiah of Israel. That yes, they have to believe that God truly did raise Jesus from the dead. And because Jesus wants them to serve as eyewitnesses, that's why he gives them evidence, Uh, He lets them see him and handle him. Uh, He wants them to be able to go out and testify, but first they have to actually believe that what God has done in history really is true. And so in order to be a faithful witness, one must have faith in the resurrected Christ. That's one of the preliminary things that's necessary if you're going to be a witness for Jesus. See, sharing the good news requires that somewhere you've got to come to a decision about whether or not these accounts about Jesus are really true. Now, so I ask you today, do you actually believe that Jesus was raised from the dead? Now, before you dismiss that, perhaps in your mind you quickly said, yeah, of course I believe in that. I wouldn't be at church if I didn't, you know. Maybe you already dismissed that. But but, but hold on just a moment. Don't move too quickly. Have you really considered it, and the implications of what that belief means for your life, society, and the world. Have you really thought about what this actually means? Have you given time, and if someone were to ask you, why do you believe that, that seems like an audacious claim for you to make about reality, would you be able to give them reasons of why you believe this to be true, that is, that it reflect, reflects reality? Would you be able to answer that question? I remember for me uh, a number of years ago uh, when I was a teenager, this was brought home to me when uh, my sister and I were standing. I I can't remember exactly where we were, but we were in a a conversation and some kind of way it came out in the conversation that we were uh, growing up in a Christian family and we were identifying ourselves as Christian. And I remember uh, the person asking my sister, why are you a Christian? And I know I remember she gave an answer, but I remember the feeling that I had on the inside. And the feeling that I had on the inside was terror. I was terrified because I did not want them to ask me that question because I knew that if they asked me that question, I did not have an answer for it. And I was so glad that they did not ask me, that they left it at my sister because I realized that if someone had really questioned me about my faith, I had nothing to be able to give to them or offer to them about why I was claiming to be a Christian. Perhaps that's where you are. Think about it. If you're going to try to convince others about the message of Jesus, you yourself must know that you actually believe that message. It's hard to convince others about something you yourself have not truly given thought or evaluated whether or not you hold that to be true. That brings me to the second thing in the text, Here's the second thing. Sharing the good news requires that you actually have to tell the story of Jesus. If for it to be good news, you have to tell the story of Jesus. Verses 44 through verse 48. Let me show you that in the text. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was with you, that everything written about me in the law law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and the repentance and forgiveness of sin should be be proclaimed in his name that all nation to all nations, beginning in Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. Second thing the Lord tells them is that he informs his disciples that his life and what happens in his life was not unexpected. This was not some new development in God's plan where God just kind of threw a curveball and said, Oh, I know I've been telling you all this stuff in the Old Testament, and now, oh, here's Jesus. This is something totally different. You didn't see this one coming. No, that's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus says that what has happened in his life is the fulfillment of Old Testament scripture. What God had been promising in ages past was now being brought to completion. In the person of Jesus, and at this moment, it had been completed and accomplished in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, they didn't see that because they weren't reading the Bible in that way. They were reading the Bible differently. So, what Jesus has to do is go back and explain the scriptures in light of the Christ event. And so he says, in order to understand the Old Testament rightly, you've got to look at what God has done in Jesus. And he says, so, so if you want to understand what God was about or what God was doing, he was always going in this direction. This was always God's plan. This was always what God was going to do. This is not something new. This is simply God's plan, plan being played out in history. And it was always there. It was already written. You just didn't read it that way. So Jesus takes time and he illuminates the scriptures for them and he shows them how the Old Testament was already pointing in this direction. What does he tell them that the message is? The message is that the Messiah would come, would die for the sins of his people, that God would raise him from the dead, and then, they, and then his witnesses would go out and carry this message to the world, and they would proclaim that through the Messiah, Israel's Messiah, that there would be the only way to God, that there would be repentance, need to be repentance, the change of life and direction and mind about God and about His Messiah, and forgiveness of sins through Jesus who is the Christ. And so he says this is the message that we be preached to all people. And God had always been intending this. And this would be God's way of salvation. And they would carry this message to the world. Now if you were to look in your Bible and you were to do some Bible research, you would not find a passage in the Bible that says the Messiah is going to come, the Messiah is going to die, the Messiah is going to be raised, and then they're going to preach preach this to all nations. You wouldn't find a verse like that in your Bible. So you're saying, well, where do we get that from then? Where was Jesus pulling this from? Well, it's because of how the passages are all pointing the story of the Old Testament are pointing in this direction. I would have loved if Jesus would have, if Luke would have found another piece of, of papyrus and took the time and wrote out everything that Jesus said here. I would have loved if he had told me about the conversation on the Emmaus Road. I would have loved to see how Jesus laid out those scriptures for us. He doesn't tell us that. But what we get to see is by looking at the, uh, the apostles' preaching and writing, what scriptures were God was drawing upon, Jesus was drawing upon, and that came out in their writings and in their preaching. Let me show you some of the ways that that, that played out. Uh, when, they, when they came to talking about and thinking about where was it at in the Scriptures where we see the Messiah suffering for the people? Well, we look back at passages like Psalm 22 and Psalm 31 and Psalm 69. These are lament psalms. And in there, it talks about the suffering and agonizing. And then most likely... Uh, One of the greatest texts that we have in the Old Testament is uh, the Servant Song of Isaiah, Isaiah 52, that leads in 53, where it talks about the servant of Israel who is actually Israel, the representative, the leader, who would come and offer his life for the sins of the people. And he would die because not for his own sins, he would die for the sins of the people. Then some kind of way later, the servant appears alive. It doesn't tell us how he's going to be alive, but he is alive, which is supplied by ultimately resurrection. But there was there. It was there the whole time. The servant songs talk about that. Then we see in passages like Psalm 16, verses 8 through 10, and Psalm 110, verse 1, that points in the direction of the resurrection. Peter preached this on the first day uh, of Pentecost when he stood up. He said to them, listen, when David wrote back in Psalm 16, he was inspired by the Spirit, and he said that, that God would not allow his Holy One to see corruption. And then Peter goes on and explains he couldn't have been talking about himself because David is still dead, and we know where his tomb is. So he had to be talking about the Messiah. Who is the one who's not seen corruption? Well, it's Jesus. He is the Holy One of God, whom God has raised from the dead. The Scriptures were always pointing in that direction. And the Scriptures have always been pointing in the direction that God's work would not stop with Israel, but salvation would be preached. To the nations, starting with Jerusalem. We see that in passages like Isaiah chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, Isaiah 49, 6, Hosea 1:10, Micah chapter 4, verses 1 through 2. There was always God's plan to work through Israel to take the message of salvation to the nations. And most likely, most of us in this room, we are the recipients of that, and that is the proof that God has brought his message of salvation to the nations. Because most of us in this room probably are not of descent, direct descent from Abraham in the sense of being from the nation of Israel. The good news must be proclaimed. So sharing the good news means that we have to tell the story of Jesus in light of God's ultimate story that is laid out in the Old Testament. See, Jesus' story is just God's story being fulfilled in human history. It's not good news until the message and story and life of Jesus has been told. What does Jesus imply for his disciples here by telling them this? He implies that there must be intentionality in us sharing the good news with others. He's saying don't wait for someone to show up to you. You ought to take the active role and pursue others for the sake of sharing the good news with them. They might not come looking for it from you, but you've got to go out and pursue them. You've got to go out into the world and be witnesses. So if you were sitting in a coffee place. Perhaps you were sitting in Starbucks having a nice, uh, what I like to drink, a, a cup of uh, chai latte tea, and you were sitting down, sipping it, reading one of your books, devotional Christian books, and someone passed by and noticed you were sitting there, and they stopped and sat at the table, and they're like, you know, I, I've been wondering about this whole Christianity thing. I, I just want to know, can you tell me the message of Christianity? What is this really all about? Why, why do you guys believe this? Up? What's going on? Can you tell me what this is about? Would you be able to take time and explain that to them? That's what Jesus is getting at. Here's the message that's out there. If you're not here last week, of course, Dr. Ray did an excellent job of giving context or ideas of winsome ways to engage people uh, in our world and in our society. And so I, I won't try to recover that information today. The sermon is available. You can listen to that. Now, someone might respond to that and they say, Listen, I'm not a pastor. I didn't go to school like you. I didn't go to seminary. I haven't taken any online Bible classes. I don't know the message that well. So I don't real feel, feel real comfortable talking about the message of Jesus to others. And I say to you, okay, that's fine. I understand. I was there. I've been there. If you had asked me as I shared in the story, there was a point in time when I didn't feel comfortable doing that. But I must ask the follow-up question that, should we say that we should be in that same place two years from now when we live in an information age? Should we say that that's a good excuse, that that's okay to not change in that area of our lives because I don't feel comfortable? Or should we be in a different place years from now when it comes to telling the message of Jesus? Here's a third thing I would ask you to consider from the text. Sharing the good news requires the spirit of Jesus. So it requires the spirit of Jesus. Notice what he says in the text, verse 49. And behold, I am a witness... uh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And behold, I am sending the promise of the Father upon you but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. I actually find this fascinating in the text because the way that I think about sharing and talking with others, I might not even include this in my thoughts about things, but Jesus includes this. Why do I find this fascinating? So he's told them that they need faith. He's dealt with the whole faith issue. He's dealt with the message issue, that is, what are they to tell people? And and they know who they have to reach. So I have faith. I, I, I know what the message is I have to tell, and I know who I'm supposed to reach. It just seems like at this point, let me go. Let me do my job, right? But Jesus says, wait, right? And this is where it gets really interesting. What does he want them to wait on? He wants them to wait on the empowerment of the Spirit of God because some kind of way in Jesus' mind, you can't be effective without the Spirit of God if you're going to witness for Christ. We see this kind of played out in Acts 2. When the Spirit shows up, what happens as a result of that? The Spirit shows up and and then indwells these uh, 120 believers, and we see how the ministry is effective in their witnessing and how as a result of that people's lives are changed and they come to faith in Christ and become disciples of Jesus. Now this is what the Old Testament had been promising all along. God had already been promising that this is not something new. Not something different. This is not something to be unexpected. God had already been talking about this. He said this in Joel chapter 2. Peter alludes to that passage. Verse 28 and 29. God said he would pour out his spirit. Isaiah 32 15, 44, 3, Ezekiel 39, 29, the New Covenant. The whole idea was that one day God would give His Spirit to all His people so that they could be His witnesses in the world. What Jesus says is, if you're going to be a witness for me, you must have my Spirit. Now that says something to us in the modern age because in our efforts, and we often can rely, we can be tempted to rely simply on human means alone. We can say, hey, I can come up with a good strategy. This is how I'm going to win this person. This is what I'm going to say to them. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to get this done. I'm going, to win them. I'm going to knock them down with this argument. And I'm going to do all these human things to get people. But what Jesus says is if there's going to be true transformation in a person's life where their allegiance shifts from themselves to God so that they live no longer for themselves but actually have a heart change and live for God, the spirit must be present for that to happen in the life of a person. So what Jesus says is that if you're going to be his witness, you cannot, I cannot seek to serve and witness for Jesus without the Spirit of God. As Paul alludes to in in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, he says it is the Spirit who takes the ability, goes into the human heart, and he uses this imagery, Old Testament imagery, of removing the veil so that people can see rightly. We cannot do that. We can't get into people's lives in that way. Only God's Spirit can do that. This is the whole Testament of the the whole view of the New Testament about the Christian life. This is why the Apostle Paul is so jazzed about what Christ has done. Because of Christ's death and resurrection, because of his ascension back to heaven, he pours out the Spirit which the Father had promised. And then the idea of the Christian life for that the New Testament lays out is that the the Christian life is a Spirit-empowered life. And what the Spirit does when he comes in is he helps us to overcome what well, we cannot do on our own. We can know what the law of God is, but in our own selves, we can't will ourselves to keep doing it. The Spirit of God has to take up residence in us so that we're able to overcome that and live in a way that pleases God. This is exactly what the New Testament teaches. Your entire life is to be lived in under the influence and under the direction and the empowerment of the Spirit of God. It's the very presence of the Spirit that distinguishes whether one person is a Christian. And another person is not. How do I know if you're a Christian? If you're a Christian, you have the Spirit of God. If you don't have the Spirit of God, then you're not a Christian. That's ultimately what distinguishes us. Notice what Paul says. He says in, in, uh, in Galatians chapter 5, verse 16, he says, listen, your life has to be lived in step with the Spirit of God. You are to walk by the Spirit. That is how the Christian life is to be lived. And just in case you think that's the only place he says it, he says the same things to the Romans. We like to go to Romans chapter 5, and we talk about the different things that are going there. But he says uh, in Ephesians, excuse me, Ephesians chapter 5, where he gets it in all this marriage and relationship stuff. But right before that, you know what he says? Don't be drunk with wine, but be filled, that is, come under the control of the Spirit of God. That if you're going to order your relationships rightly in your life, that's only done by the power of God's Spirit. That's how you get your marriage right. That's how you know how to relate rightly in your relationships with your children. That's how you know how to relate rightly in your work environment. Is because the Spirit of God is the one who guides you in that way. Romans chapter 8, verse 12 through 17. Paul says, listen, if you're not led by the Spirit of God, you're not the children of God. And the Spirit of God is the one who directs the life of the believer. If he doesn't direct your life, then you don't belong to God. This is the very evidence. And so Jesus says, in light of that fact, because the entire Christian life is to be lived in connection with the Spirit of God, even your witnessing cannot be effective apart from God's Spirit. It's the reason why we see in the New Testament the believers often praying. One of the themes that you see running throughout the Old Testament into the New Testament is that the people of God are praying people. What are they doing in prayer? They're acknowledging their lack of ability to accomplish what God wants on their own. They're saying, God, I don't have the ability to do what you're asking. I need you to help me. And so what do we see? They pray often and they wait for God to move. And when He moves, He does it by His Spirit. That's why none of the glory goes to us and it always goes back to God because it's done by His power. If you're going to witness You need the Spirit of God to do that effectively. That brings me to the fourth thing in the text. And I find it in the final verses. Sharing the good news requires understanding the divine authority of Jesus. Look back at the text with me here in the final verses. And then he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually In the temple, blessing God. So you might be asking, so how can Jesus really command me to go out and tell others who don't embrace the same view that Jesus wants them to have about him, that other people have these other views? How can I go in their life and tell them ultimately, hey, look, you got to look at things a different way. The way you're looking at them, well, that would not be the right way to look at reality. This is the right way to look at reality. How can I go and say that to someone else? You know, I don't want to offend them. I don't want to be mean. But how can I do that? It has to do with the fact that Jesus has divine authority. That's what's happening here in the text. Again, I must draw back on the Old Testament. This is exactly what was understood from the Old Testament. Two places in the Old Testament we draw upon. Psalm chapter, Psalm 110 verse 1. The, the, well, David writes and he says, the Lord, that is Yahweh, said to my Lord, the Messiah, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And then Daniel chapter 7, there's a vision that Daniel has while in prayer. And what this vision is, if one who, like a son of man, that is one who looks like a human, comes with a cloud of the clouds of heaven, he comes into God's presence and God gives him authority to rule over all people and gives him a kingdom. And so there's this idea of these two things. There's a human who's going to be lifted up to God's side that's going to receive divine authority. That's what the ascension is communicating to the disciples, that Jesus has divine authority. Think about this. In the text, what has Jesus already done? Does he really need to ascend? Well, remember on the Emmaus Road, they were having dinner. They figured out who Jesus was. What did he do? Disappeared. They were in the room. John tells us the doors were locked. Jesus just appears. I don't think Jesus needs to necessarily ascend to get where he wants to go. He could have just disappeared. They could have been out there in Bethany at the foot of the Mount of Olives, and Jesus has been like, hey, it's been good. See you guys in a little bit. Do what I told you till I get back. Poof, he was gone, right? He was there. He wasn't there. doesn't look like like that Jesus needs. I don't know if that's teleportation. I don't know what that is. But whatever it is, he can do it, right? So he doesn't need to ascend to get away. Jesus is ascending to communicate a message to his disciples about his authority in light of Old Testament text so that they would connect the Old Testament text to what was happening in the life of of Jesus. So in the ancient world, there was a view about where God was at. And one of the ideas people thought about was that God was up in the heavens above. They didn't have planes. They couldn't travel. They didn't get to outer space. So they kind of had this idea that God was up above. And so what does Jesus do? He gives them a visual picture of where he's going. Where does he do? He ascends upward and a cloud receives him. There's a connection to Daniel chapter 7. But he, a cloud receives him and he goes up. And where does he go? For them, he's communicating to them, he's returning to God's right hand. He wants them to understand that he has divine authority and that's why he can commission them to do what he wants them to do. One commentator put it this way, and the reason we know that that's true is because of what happens at the end of the text. Notice what the text says. They worshiped him uh, as a result of watching what happened. They then understood. The commentator puts it this way. He says, A further interest is the fact that in Luke Acts, worship is denied of images, is denied of the devil, and is denied of mere mortals. Luke says no worship is to be given to humans, images, or the devil. The only person who is to be worshipped is God. And in light of that fact, because they worship Jesus, it signifies that the disciples have at last understood who Jesus really is. The entire gospel that we've been preaching through, the disciples have been struggling to figure out who Jesus is. He looks like us, he's just like us, but then he does these other things that are not like us. And he takes authority upon himself that only God can do, like forgiving sins. And now he's been raised from the dead. He's ascended to God's right hand. And, they, and if the, the light bulb finally comes on for them. This guy that we've been dealing with for the last three and a half years, that we've been walking around with, this guy is God come down to earth and become embodied. And they say because he's God, he deserves to be worshipped. That's why we gather here on the weekends. And in light of that fact, they then worship him. Why is this important for us? We live in a world with governments. We live in a world where other people make rules and tell us what we can and cannot do. And sometimes they tell us we cannot tell other people about Jesus. But what we have to realize is that the highest authority has already spoken and has overruled all earthly authorities. You have the right to tell others about Jesus because God has given you that right. And his authority trumps all other authority. And that's why you can witness to others, because God has said that you can. Cedarville President uh, Paul Dixon tells the story of a high school girl who had come to a conference in the mid-90s around 1995 when the conference happened. And he was was talking about this very topic of sharing your faith, engaging other people, being intentional, living in a Christian life, and that this is part of the Christian life. He talked about this aspect of the Christian life. And as the young lady who was a high school student was listening, she heard this, her heart was pricked, and she said to herself, you know what, I want to make a difference because I believe in Jesus, I'm following Him, and I, I would like to do that. So in light of this, she went home and she began to pray. And she asked God, Lord, Provide me with an opportunity so that I can be obedient to you and do what you have asked me to do. I want to see other people come to faith and become disciples of Jesus and live a Christian life. Well, she went to school the next day and in high school, just a regular public high school, one of her teachers was fed up with with the way things were going. And when he walked into the classroom, this is what he said to the class that day. He said, I had it. I'm tired of the hassle of teaching kids who don't show any respect. And if any of you could tell me the meaning of life and what it's all about and what the purpose of life is, you go ahead and tell me right now. She was surprised. And she raised her hand. And she said to him in front of all of the other students of her class, the question that you've asked, the question that you're asking, I have found those answers in the person of Jesus Christ after class was over that day, the teacher asked her to come. Uh, he was actually an agnostic at that time. And they sat down and had a very lengthy discussion about Christianity and beliefs and how what Christ had done answered the question he was asking about life. And then she invited him out to an event that, where there was more information about Christianity so that he could really have time to think this through. And surprisingly, he took her up on her offer, and he went. And he asked questions, and he got engaged and got in discussion. And then as a result of that, God saved him. And he became a believer in Jesus Christ. And is still currently a believer and a follower of Jesus Christ today. Brothers and sisters, what the text is saying to us as Luke ends his gospel is simply this. Because of the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it requires a response from us. It's not just simply good information for us to hold on to and feel good about. We have to do something with it. And that doing that God wants us to do is to make sure that not only we live in a way that pleases God, but that we engage others who are lost and far from God so that they can know what the message is and have the opportunity to believe so that they might have life as well. It's not simply good enough to know you've got to tell somebody else. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for the truth of your word that challenges us. Lord, as often in myself, I've been challenged as well, Lord, uh, in this area. There are times when it's uncomfortable. Uh, There are times when I battle with fear. Uh, Lord, there are times when I don't want to be viewed uh, differently or insane or crazy by people in society. And so Father, sometimes I don't speak up when I should. Perhaps there's maybe one or two others here who might feel that same way and have had that in life. I pray that you would give us courage, Lord. Lord, and in winsome ways to know how to engage others, Lord because we genuinely care about other people because we love them. We're concerned about their welfare, their good. And so, Lord, we we out of love seek to engage them. Not necessarily necessarily in the way of a, a sermon, but, Lord, through conversation, sometimes over years of answering questions and encouraging and praying with or praying for people. And, Lord, you bring them to faith and it's not because of anything we've done but because we rely on the work of your spirit we do our part as humans by telling the message to be faithful but lord we trust that you're the one who does the work in the heart and so father we ask that you would do that perhaps there's a a person right now that we're working with there may be some in this room who are already in the lives of people lord and they're waiting for an opportunity would you provide them that opportunity that, that they're looking for in the life of a co-worker a friend or a relative to engage in spiritual conversations. Lord, to have the people reconsider the way that they have thought about life. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with us? We'll sing our final song and then we'll dismiss you in just a moment.